The gospel lesson is taken from Luke's gospel, chapter 2, verses 41 through 52. This then is the gospel of our Lord. Every year, his parents went to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the feast according to the custom After the feast was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Thinking who was in their company, they traveled on for a day. Then they began looking for him among the relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me? He asked. Don't you know I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he was saying to them. Then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart, and Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let me take you back maybe 2,400 years and introduce this little story to you. It's back during Aristotle's time. There is a story of a beggar who was going door to door asking for alms because his house, he said, was destroyed by fire. A housewife of the village asked him, do you have a document from the town hall confirming that your story is true? Alas, sighed the beggar. That was destroyed in the fire too. Now, when you think about that, and I'll bring it up later, there's some humor in it, but some of you didn't get it. But you will when I finish. What I want to do now is turn to the text. The text, of course, is Luke chapter 2, verses 41 through 52. This is the account of Jesus in the temple at 12 years of age. This account is only found in Luke's gospel. No other gospel has this. There is something found in the infancy narratives of the gospel of Thomas, which is a Gnostic work, but it is, of course, spurious, meaning that it has false elements to it, though it roughly recounts this story. And it dates from about 170 A.D., It's only profitable in that it reiterates something of this story, which means that they knew the gospel of Luke. But remember, in the canonical, legitimate gospels, this is the only place that this story is found. And in looking at the text earlier in the week, I realized that this passage lends itself nicely to an exhortation an exhortation to follow the example provided for us in the life of a 12-year-old, but our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Here we have an example for children. We have an example for adults. And for anyone who is seeking a new beginning in life, we have uh, an example. We are at the beginning, of course, of a new year. And uh, your life, as to put it in computer terms, may need to be rebooted. I would suggest that you go home then after this sermon and read this text, particularly about six o'clock this evening, and read this text and see if you cannot find maybe some elements here that will not only inform your life, but you will make a resolve to carry them out the best you can. So my thesis is this. Let us start the new year with a greater resolve to obey the fifth commandment which is, of course, honor your father and your mother that your days may be long upon the earth. And uh, it will become apparent, I hope, that the central lesson in this passage really is not so much Jesus astounding the scholars in the temple as it is his relationship with his mother and his earthly father. And so we'll look at the text. As I said, Luke is the only gospel that includes this incident. The question, though, is uh, what occasion is this? And it's always fitting to, to put a context to Jesus' action and Jesus' sayings. Now, we have an intimate crowd here today, and I normally would suggest that you only sit back and listen because it is the hearing of the word that produces faith. If you're too busy floundering around in your Bible, you may not exercise your, your full powers of hearing. But let me invite you to turn to a passage of Scripture in Exodus 34. And in Exodus 34, there is a, something that maybe you will miss in your yearly a reading of the Bible. Some of you have purposed to do that every year. And in verse 23 of chapter 34, we have a context for this particular passage of Scripture. And it says, verse 22, I'll start with, celebrate the feast of weeks with the first fruits of the wheat harvest and the feast of ingathering at the turn of the year. Now, that ends the passage. And here's the verse I want you to remember. Three times a year, all your men are to appear before the sovereign Lord, the God of Israel. There uh, were three great pilgrim feasts in Israel. Three times a year, when... um, Young men in particular, notice this has to do with a a, a concession to age and infirmity. But three times a year, you are to go up to Jerusalem, and this would include young women and children as well. They would go in caravans. Jesus' parents, of course, by now, lived in Galilee. And it would be a four or five day journey one way to get to Jerusalem and to get back. I kind of added up all of the time that it would take to celebrate the three, three feasts for Jesus and his family and also to, to uh, observe the Sabbath. And we're talking uh, about 30-some percent of the time of their existence, their life centered around the temple or around religious worship. 
30% of their life was devoted to that. So I don't think Westminster requires too much of its members in this church. But remember that. The uh, first feast that they were to go to was the Passover, Peshach. It lasted eight days. So if you go five days down, five days back, eight days, that's 18 days just for Peshach or the Passover. The second is Shavuot or Pentecost. And it was 50 days after Passover. And again, they would trek down and trek back. And the third great feast was Shakut or Tabernacles. It was a seven-day event, and you went down and built booths and made uh, merry and had fun. It was just like Christmas in many ways. And so three times a year. On this occasion, Jesus goes with his family at Passover to the temple in Jerusalem. Jesus appeared with his parents, and he was a child. Now, I want you to notice that he was not bar mitzvahed at this occasion. I've heard sermons where the preacher actually said that Jesus was being bar mitzvahed. He was not. He was not yet 13 years of age. And you had to be 13 to be bar mitzvahed, particularly at this time, which they would held to, hold to it scrupulously. And so this is not a bar mitzvah. This is really a Passover observance. But what happens? Jesus ends up in the temple courts among the professional scribes and lawyers and those who are expert in the things of the law. And uh, he sat down, and notice he is reverent and obedient. He's not an upstart. Jesus is not a rebel, contrary to some of those pictures that you will see uh, on uh, the Discovery Channel and the life of Jesus, that he was a kind of rebel. Never in his life was he a kind of rebel, per se. Now, the important point is he was obedient. He was sitting down, and he was answering questions as they were posed, and he answered them with great wisdom and skill. And no doubt he even showed his wisdom to a greater degree when he posed questions about the law. And the following, following year, he would be bar mitzvahed, and he would indeed become a son of the law. So they are amazed. Now, at the same time, though, Jesus stayed behind. We had a family here in the church one year. They were taking their, their uh, son to Covenant College. Now, that's a pretty far piece down to Lookout Mountain, Georgia, a suburb of, of uh, Chattanooga, Tennessee. Korean family. And uh, uh, they, they were very strict. They drove from, New, uh, from um, uh, uh, down close to New Rochelle, by the way, twice a day to our services. Every Lord's Day. So they were very observant. They would be here on Sunday morning, drive home, come back, and then we got have mercy on them. And I said, please come and stay at the manse and, and relax. Don't drive all the way back. And so forth. Scarsdale, where they lived. Anyway, they were taking their son to Covenant College. And they stopped at a service station. Now, remember, they have a much more strict, at least this family did, uh, structure than most Americans have. And um, they all came back in the car except one, the oldest boy. He was going to college. He was buying a candy bar. But the parents got in and started driving. They drove 80 miles before they turned around to see that their son wasn't there. You might ask, why did the other children speak up? Because it was not their place. And so, they had to turn around and come back and get him. Something like this happened to Jesus. 
except this was a three-day deal. And they come back and finally find him in the temple. Notice how, how no doubt exasperated they are, but more than that, they are literally, with respect to their nerves, torn to pieces, no doubt. Where is this 12-year-old boy? They had looked in the caravan, they couldn't find him, and finally somebody said, let's go back to where we started out from. And there he was in the temple. Now Mary says to him, son, why have you treated us like this? Boy, have I said that to my children. Why do you treat your mother like this? I hope she says the same thing for me. She probably does. Why do you treat us like this when you stayed out late or longer than you should? Or we can't get a hold of you in your dorm room in the college. It, it, creates, it creates some true concern, doesn't it? Well, why do you treat us like this? Your father, she says, earthly father, your father and I have been worried to death about you. That's my translation. And Jesus answers, what were you, why were you searching for me? Don't you know that I have to be in my father's house? Now, you know right away that this passage is truly revelatory concerning who Jesus is. It, it would make a statement, not only to his parents, but to his cousins and uh, uh, to his uncles and his aunts, everyone in the caravan that set out for Jerusalem. They would have known his answer. Maybe, maybe they thought this was, you know, out of line. I don't know. But these are, if you want to know how important they are, the first recorded words of Jesus in the Bible. Remember, we don't have him speaking at the infancy narratives. And later on, when he's two or so years of age, when the kings come, we don't have him speaking at any other time in his life before he enters his public ministry. And here we have the recorded words of Jesus his first recorded words found in the Bible. Now, let's look then at the text. Jesus answered, um, and his answer demonstrates that he has a growing awareness of his role and life as a youngster. It's important to understand that Jesus, when he was born of the virgin... His life had to unfold in a natural progression and development. And he gradually learns who he is. First of all, I'm sure he learned who he was because his mother taught him over and over and told him the story of his birth. Now notice he had to accept that by faith. You see, Jesus is living a life of faith and obedience just like we're called to live a life of faith and obedience. And here is an example of what the Christian life is. And so he does indeed learn progressively who he is. And by the time he is a man who is mature, he recognizes his role and his calling and his origins as a man, that he's also divine, and that he submits himself, amazingly so, to his parents, but on this one occasion, his response indicates that he's quite aware that his true father 
is in heaven. You know, this is in some ways to be always connected with the birth narratives. That which is in you is holy, told the angel to Mary. And here he's fulfilling that. He is in the temple. He is in the temple and he's, he's demonstrating his wisdom. He's also demonstrating that he is aware that he is the Son of God. The Messiah that was to come would be characterized by two things. One, he would be the Son of God, and two, he would be exceptionally wise. So this is a revelation of who Jesus is. God here is revealing his Son as the Messiah through the wisdom he possessed and through the fact that he knew that he was God's Son by special birth. There's a growing awareness then here of his favor with God. And that concludes the section, if you notice that. Now, this passage then must be linked to Jesus' holy birth, as we have it in chapter 1, verse 35. It is linked to that, and Luke does this in a special way to make sure you understand that Jesus is developing as a man, not only in stature, but in his awareness and consciousness of himself and who he is. But the heart of this text is not necessarily that. The heart of this text, you might say, is the fifth commandment. You say, Pastor, why, why do you say that? That doesn't seem to rise to the level of Jesus being revealed as the Son of God or that he is the Messiah who will be wise and able to lead God's people. But I want you to notice his answer speaks to the fifth commandment, does it not? In the passage, when they found him in the temple, and his mother tells him of his concern, son, why have you treated us this way? He says simply, why were you searching for me, he asked. Don't you know that I had to be in my father's house? Very simply, Jesus is obeying the fifth commandment, is he not? through submitting to the will and way of his Father in heaven. And that is sufficient. That is sufficient. But he goes on to say, and the passage is very instructive, uh, after this, it goes on to say, well, they didn't fully understand. Then it says he went back to Nazareth, or down to Nazareth, with them and was obedient to them. Now, this is the main part of the text. Jesus is not only growing in favor and stature, in favor with God as he grows up. He is also obedient to his parents as he grows in stature. You know, obedience to parents is a very important matter. And I would say there are not many children here today, but children should take to heart the blessings of being obedient to the uh, will and counsel of your parents. How many children, as they grow on, up and on in life, make a shipwreck of their lives because they forget the fifth commandment? Yes, I'm talking about Christian young people. I'm thankful for grace and forgiveness, but know this, one can make and set oneself in life in a direction 
or one will have to suffer hardships in life due to decisions made. It is maybe unfair that almost all of your important decisions in life are made between about the ages of 14 and 25. But that's the case. It is especially crucial that we listen to the counsel of our parents, even when you get into your 20s. Well, even when you get into your 30s. I still listen to the counsel of my parent and my father. It's an important matter. I sometimes get criticized by some in the family. Why do you pay attention? Well, because I believe that he's wiser than I am. And your parents in one way will always be wiser than you about your life. They know you better than anyone except God. They bore you. They understand your personality, your needs, your interests. They've observed you intently all of your life. This is a wonderful passage, an illustration of Jesus keeping the fifth commandment. Moreover, all of his life before his Father in heaven, he was obedient, even, the Scripture says, unto death, a death on the cross. Well, parents also are not exempt here, of course. The reason that the fifth commandment is important is that parents, too, have an obligation to their children, not, as Paul says, to discourage them, but to be wise on their behalf. Many problems in life would be solved by more parent, parental attention to the lives of our young. So, this is a wonderful passage on the fifth commandment. Now, there are some examples then we are to follow here. Children, obey your parents. Parents, do not discourage your children. But there's one other matter here. There is a final question, and it is, if you will, an existential question, a question for your whole life. And as we enter into the year 2013, I hope that children will, will be resolved to be better and uh, carrying out their obedience to their parents. I hope that parents will be better in nurturing and advising their children. But the big question here is, likewise, that looms in the background is what think ye of Christ? Whose son is he really? This is the question that Jesus asked his disciples at the foot of the mountain, the pagan mountain, in Caesarea Philippi, when he said to them, What think ye of Christ? Whose son is he? And Peter steps forward and answers, this is a question that every Christian must ask and answer at every stage in their life. Always. You are following one that requires you to address that question. Who is Jesus? And what does he mean for my life? Is he truly the Son of God and the Messiah as this text indicates? It's more than just simply a rhetorical question. It is a question that you must base your life on. Time after time after time, Christians are called to come back to the basics and to remember who they are in the light who God is and what he has revealed to us. So I would bid you to make that resolution, every one of you. Who is Jesus? And I bid you to answer it into your heart right now. Who is he? What is he for you? Is he your Lord, your Savior? Have you received him as your Lord and your Savior? 
You know, receiving the Lord is something that I do quite regularly. Lord, come into my heart. It's not just the sinner's prayer. It's also for the prayer for the Christian. Lord, enable me to live for you. Give me strength. Now, you have an enemy to these resolutions. I told you a story at the beginning, didn't I? Well, notice that is a joke. The man said his permit burned up in the house. He would have to get the permit after the house burned down to validate, in case you didn't get that. But this was told in Aristotle's time to illustrate one point, that man is his own worst enemy. You see, the beggar couldn't keep his facts straight. And of course, he was deceiving anyway. He didn't have a permit. You are your own worst enemy as you face the new year. It's, it's, it's not Washington, really. It's uh, not those people down there where you work. It's, it's really not the people you associate with. Your own worst enemy is yourself. And we need at times to resolve, to make a resolve that we will indeed try to overcome those sins which so easily beset us and get a new start on life, to be rebooted, as I said earlier. I had a wedding yesterday. It actually wasn't a wedding, it was a renewal of vows. And I'm going to say this because I don't see them here in the church. I thought I would not say this if they showed up today. So in one ways I get to tell this because of the snow. 18 years ago I married this couple. They're not part of Westminster Church. And I do marry sometimes couples outside the church if they're in the same position spiritually. And sometimes that will mean two unbelievers or two believers. And so about a month ago, I got a call from the lady who wanted to renew their vows on the day in which they were married 18 years ago. And so in my office yesterday, she began to tell me that it had an extraordinarily difficult year. And I won't go into the details. It wouldn't be uh, proper and right. But there had been depression. There had been the bruising of each other in their relationship. And she says, I remember what you said to us 18 years ago. That when you marry people, you marry them to stick together through thick and thin. That's the way I put it to them. And I believe I reminded them that marriage is an illustration of the relationship to Christ, to his church. And Christ always loves the church and is faithful to the church. And that carried him through all of these years. And I had that renewal service yesterday with great tears of joy on their part to get a new, fresh start in life. Now here's what I really want you to get. 
The world will not give you a new start, a new beginning. They will hold against you your sins, your foibles. There is no redemption out there. It is in the context of grace and forgiveness that you can get a new start. So I would remind you, no matter what the relationships are with your children or your children with the parents, you can have a fresh start. I don't know what you've thought of Christ in the past, but you can have a beginning with him, and yea, a new beginning. That's what this passage is teaching us. It not only reveals who Jesus is to us, it reveals our obligations to emulate him. He is our example. He was faithful to his Father in heaven. He was faithful to his parents on earth. In obedience to the grace of God, just like you and me. That's what the word favor means. New beginning. You only find that in Christ. You only find real forgiveness and the power of the Holy Spirit to enable you to live for Christ. I hope you remember this story. It's there for a reason. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction and instruction in righteousness. Amen.